Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Well, I have been thinking a lot about how people learn. You see, my family, we love to play games. We love board games, card games, strategy games. Uh, If you have ever watched the TV show Parks and Recreation, you may remember an episode called The Cones of Dunshire. Like those are the kinds of games we're into, very complex strategy games. And we love to learn new games. So our library has a collection of games that you can actually check out. And so almost every week we have a brand new game that we bring home and we try to learn it together as a family. Now, if you have ever learned a new game and you've tried to do it by simply reading the instructions, you realize how frustrating that can be, especially if the game is at all complex. You you read through it and you think, man, just the descriptions of these words does not help me imagine what I'm supposed to do. I, I I can't figure it out this way. So what we usually do is we actually pull up a video online. There's always someone who puts on YouTube, here's how to play this game, and they, they show it and explain it. But what we've discovered, the very best way to learn a new game is to have someone present who already knows how to play the game. They, they explain it to you as you go along. In fact, sometimes it's better not just to tell the rules up front, but to just set up the game and start playing and have that person explain it to you as you go, and you pick up the rules and how it works as you go along. Now, here's what all of this is about. I think that this is not just the best way to learn a board game. I actually think this is the best way to learn anything, anything, and that includes leadership. This is the last week in our series called What It Takes to Lead. We've been looking at the life of Moses, who was the first and one of the greatest leaders in Israel's history. And today, we're talking not just about how Moses led, but how he empowered and trained others to lead. We are talking about the subject of apprentices, apprentices. Now, perhaps that's not a word you use in everyday conversation, but here's what I mean by an apprentice. It is someone you are developing to do what you do by having them do it with you. Now, here's the key part of that definition that I wanna highlight. It is training up someone by having them do what they are learning, by having them do what they are learning. It is on-the-job learning. You don't learn through lectures or books. You learn by doing the thing you're trying to learn. And the other important part about that is they are doing it with you. They're doing it with you. Apprenticeship is relational. It's something you do together, and you discuss how you do it and why you do it, and it's very interactive that way. Now, some of you have had formal apprenticeships. You're an electrician or a plumber, and that's how you learned how to do your trade. But even for those of us who haven't had those official apprenticeships, believe it or not, this is how we've come to learn most things that we know. Not through classroom training, but through some form of informal apprenticeship. Think about it. How did you learn to speak the languages that you know how to speak? Someone who spoke those languages had conversations with you. They spoke with you and made you talk with them. How did you learn how to read? Someone who knew how to read made you read along with them. How did you learn how to drive? How did you learn how to cook? How did you learn how to play your instrument? Someone who knew how to do it made you do it with them. Even in your current job, even if you went to school for whatever you're doing, the majority of the actual skills, I'm guessing, that you use on the job, you probably learned while doing it. You probably learned it from people who had been there longer, who had been doing that job before you. Even your character the, the, the things that, that make you uh, the, the person that you are, you probably didn't learn through reading or hearing a lecture. 
You, you didn't learn how to tell the truth or apologize or work hard simply by hearing about it. You saw someone else doing it. And that person, probably your parents, probably coached you through how to do those things. And if your parents didn't do that, you probably found somebody else who was a model for you that you apprenticed under. This is the default way that human beings learn. Most practical knowledge is passed from generation to generation through this. And that includes the skills of leadership. You don't learn leadership by reading a book. You learn leadership by leading with other leaders. The passage we're going to be looking at today is found in Exodus chapter 18. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there with me. Let me give you some context for this passage. The people of Israel have just been freed from Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea. They, they were slaves several months ago, but now they're traveling across the desert and they are headed to the mountain where they're going to meet with God. It's going to be this incredible moment. But before they get there, they actually kind of have to pick someone up along the way. See, before Moses went to confront Pharaoh, he sent his wife and his sons to go stay with his father-in-law. He said, you know what, this is going to be complicated. Why don't you guys just go home and you stay there and I'll come get you when it's over. So on the way, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, is coming with his wife Zipporah and their kids. And he's sort of handing them off and say, hey, you can kind of join the caravan and keep going from there. So what happens when Jethro shows up is he and Moses, they have this great conversation. He gets to share all the things that God did in Egypt. They worship together. It's really wonderful. But then the next day, Jethro actually gets to see Moses on the job, doing what he does, leading the people of Israel. And Jethro is a leader in his own people group. And so he actually has some opinions when he sees how Moses is leading and has some feedback for him. So let's read about that starting in verse 13. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge? Why all these people stand around you from morning until evening? Moses answered him, because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it's brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Moses' father-in-law replied, what you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me, and I will give you some advice, and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions instructions and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you, the simple cases they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter because you, they will share it with you. If you do this and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. Well, around here, we believe that these are not just human words, they are also God's words. And so we like to thank God for speaking to us. Let's do that now. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, to understand this passage, you have to understand the, the situation that Moses and Israel are in. Israel is this new nation, and up until, again, just a few months ago, they were slaves, which meant their entire lives were run by the Egyptians. 
So they didn't have an established government. They didn't have any bigger structures or courts or anything like that. They had kind of their, their family systems, but nothing above and beyond that. Really, the only government they had was Moses himself. So if there was a dispute, something they couldn't figure out, who do they go to? They go to Moses. And so this is what Jethro sees. He sees hundreds of people gathered around Moses, and Moses is taking case after case from dusk till dawn. It's what he does all day long. Now, Jethro, from his own leadership experience, has some ideas about this, and he realizes this is not going to work in the long run. So he asks Moses, why are you doing it this way? And as we look at Moses' answer, we're going to see some of the reasons that many leaders bring up why they don't develop or empower other people to do what they do. In your outline, I called this first point, why you avoid apprentices. Now, I realized after I named this point that it sounded like you were physically avoiding someone who was an apprentice, like, oh, there's Emily. I hear she has a mentor. Why don't we go the other direction, okay? We don't want to talk with her. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the reason why it is hard to raise up others uh, to, to do the things you're doing. Now, the text does not dive deep into Moses' psychology and motivation here. But I was struck by Moses' response because a lot of the things he says are things I have heard leaders say, it, it, things I have said myself when asked, why, aren't you, why are you working such long hours? Why aren't you sharing the load? We say these, the, the sorts of things that Moses says. So look at verse 15. When Jethro says, why are you doing this? Moses starts off by saying, because the people come to me. Because the people come to me. So many of us keep responsibilities to ourselves simply because we want to please people. We want to please people. Now, I don't know if this was Moses' problem, but I know how my heart reacts when people come to me for help. Even if I'm really busy, the fact that they came to me it makes me feel flattered, I feel important, I feel validated. It's really nice to be needed, isn't it? And there's an innocent side to that feeling. You should feel a bit of encouragement when someone comes to you, seeks you out, but there's nothing sinful or selfish about that, but that little dose of appreciation it gets addictive. It can be hard to give that up or let someone else have that. You ever experienced this? Someone is getting attention for something that you used to do. And for some reason, that hurts. It feels like a sense of loss. Maybe even there's a feeling of jealousy towards that person. And that feeling, that loss, is one of the reasons we hold on to leadership when we should be raising up apprentices and giving it away. As Moses continues to respond to Jethro, he describes what he does when people show up. He says, I decide, I decide between the parties when there's, there's a dispute. Now, again, I don't know if Moses struggled with control issues, but I've heard lots of leaders say things like this. You know what? I'm the person who decides. I can make the tough calls. I can make the big decisions. I like to be there for that. And this is what keeps us from raising up leaders. We like deciding. We like that role of decision maker. And if you're a leader, it usually means that you've got opinions about the way things ought to be done. And if you're a good leader, you probably have a track record of having those opinions turn out well. Most leaders that I know, they will tell you, you know what, I, I believe in multiplication. I want to raise up new leaders. And they really do. They, that's a value for them and they mean it. But when it actually comes to doing it, they have a really hard time relinquishing the control or that decision-making ability. They like to be in the conversation. They, they like to make the calls. If you are a Hamilton fan, they like to be in the room where it happens, the room where it happens, okay? And giving that up feels really, really risky. It feels risky, which is related to the next reason. We don't give up leadership because we feel 
like we have unique insight into the situation. We think we've got unique insights. The other people around us, they, they just don't have the experience we do. They don't have our instincts, our perspectives on this. In the case of Moses, that's actually true. Uh, he ha- does have unique insights. Uh, in verse 16, Moses says his job is to inform the people of God's decrees and instructions. And at this point, Moses is the only, buddy who, only person who can do that. Uh, he's the only person who talks directly with God. But guess what? You are not Moses. None of us are. As a leader, none of us get to go up on the mountain and have God all by ourselves, tell, God tell us, you know, this is what you need to do. And we're the only ones with that information. None of us has a monopoly on creativity and insight. But still, there, there is some reality to the concern to say, you know what? If I've got more experience, it's likely that I've got better instincts, better insights than someone with less experience. And so there's a risk. There's a risk to handing it off that people might not do things the way you would do them. Or they might do them less well than you would do them. Although, if we're honest, the reason it feels risky is not that we think people might do worse than we will, but they might do better than we would. And that threatens our self-image as a leader. It's interesting, the researchers have, that have looked into why leaders don't delegate, they've uh, found a phenomenon that they call the self-involvement bias the self-involvement bias, they, they found that people tend to rate the results of work higher. Even if the, work is, the results are identical, they'll rate the results higher if they have been involved in bringing about those results, if they were part of the project. So an example might be in creative arts. If we make a video that we show in the weekend service here, I am likely to, to decide, oh, this was a great video, a, high, a higher quality video, if I was involved in the process, than if I, I just let Lucas and Nathan do their thing. Even if the results end up being exactly the same as they would be. It's human nature to think the thing I contributed to did a little bit better because I contributed to it. This is the reason why Paul in Romans 12, before he goes into talking about spiritual gifts that make you unique and effective, he says this, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. It is not that you do not have something unique to offer, but most of us have a tendency to overinflate how critical our contribution actually is. And that's one of the reasons we avoid raising up apprentices to take responsibilities and leadership that we have. Let's move on to the second point. Why you need apprentices, why you need apprentices. Look at verse 17, Jethro continues to respond to Moses, he says, What you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. We we all need a Jethro in our lives, don't we? Someone who can give us a reality check, who can say, okay, look, I'm given an honest perspective on the way you're leading, what you're doing. Someone who can say, this is unhealthy, this is unsustainable, this is not right. Especially as a leader, it, it is so easy for us to be insulated from feedback. Uh, last week, we talked about how to deal with grumbling. And there are times when people are grumbling in a way that you have to say, you know what, that is not criticism I need to take personally. But there are times when we categorize good feedback as grumbling and we write it off. And the way we sort that out, the best way to do it is to have someone with an outside perspective look in and say, hey, this is what I see. Someone like Jethro who can ask a probing question, give frank input. How many toxic leadership situations whether at work or at home or anywhere else, have come about because leaders were isolated 
They had no one speaking into their lives. So here's a question. Do you have a Jethro in your life? Now, in this situation, Jethro's main concern boils down to this. He says, Moses, you, you cannot do this all. You cannot do it all. And of course, this is an obvious statement for most of us. We, we all kind of know this, that whether at home or work or church or in the community, there's always more than one person can do. The problem is we don't usually take that seriously until we are desperate, until like Moses, the work is too heavy and we're, we're wearing ourselves out and working way more than we should. We need to raise up apprentices before we get to that point because we simply cannot do it all. But it's more than that. Skip down to verse 23. Jethro says, you know, if you take my advice, you'll be able to stand the strain. And more than that, all of these people will go home satisfied. Like all of these people are gonna get decisions about their cases. They're gonna get good results and they're gonna be satisfied. The reason you raise up apprentices is not just to carry the load, but because it multiplies effectiveness. It multiplies effectiveness. Again, this should be obvious. Just imagine whatever your leadership context is, if you had another person who could do all the things that you can do? What if you had 10 people who could do all the things that you could do? Imagine how much more it would free up your time, free up your headspace to think about other things and pay attention to other things that you've been neglecting. It would be amazing. People will sometimes give the advice. They'll say, you know what, at, at work, you need to make yourself indispensable. Now, that, that's good advice at one level. You, you should make sure that your employer knows the value you bring to their organization. Because that way, they're going to be less likely to let you go, and, and you'll have more of a place where, you know, there's a valued person in our organization. But sometimes, people will take that advice, and they'll turn it into this. Make sure there's certain key critical information and knowledge, key skills that you have that no one else has. Don't pass those on, otherwise you'll be redundant and therefore expendable. I actually think that is bad advice. From my perspective, I would much rather keep someone around who is developing other people to do what they can do than to, to have someone who, they're the only person who knows it. Uh, Steve Boyd, our executive pastor of operations, he loves to tell this story about past uh, a past employee here at the church who found a way to train not just other employees, other staff, but volunteers to do what she could do. Some of her core job responsibilities, she trained volunteers to do it. Now, to some of you, you're like, whoa, sounds like she just signed her pink slip. Like, if we can get some people to do it for free, why are we paying you to do it? But Steve points out, he says, this staff person did not diminish her effectiveness, she multiplied it. Which is better, to pay one person and get one person who can do the job, or to pay one person and to get five people who can do the job? I would much rather have that person around. Plus, it freed her up to do other things that were needed that she couldn't do if she was only doing that one thing. Think about this in a family context. Parents, one of your jobs as a parent is to lead your family spiritually. Practically, the sorts of activities that involve are praying with your family, discussing the Bible with your family, having spiritual conversations with your family. But how much more effective would it be if you trained up your kids to do that for each other? What if every week after church, it was not mom's job to say, hey, what did everybody learn in church today? That was big brother's job. That was his job to say, hey, what did we learn today? What if in the evening your kids rotated the responsibility for leading bedtime prayer rather than just having dad do it? 
What if instead of leading the family Bible study by yourself, you trained up your teenage daughter to do it, to lead everyone, including mom and dad, in a discussion of God's word? In terms of spiritual health, the family that raises up their kids as apprentice spiritual leaders is gonna be way healthier than the one where mom or dad are the only spiritual leaders. They're driving all the spirituality. Raising up apprentices in any area makes us more effective. Of course, sometimes it doesn't feel worth it. It's a lot harder to raise up an apprentice, at least in the short run. It's harder to teach your kid how to pray than to just say the prayer yourself. It takes more time to coach someone through a phone call with a key client than to just pick up the phone and make the call. It takes more effort to teach someone how to repair something than to just repair it yourself. At least in the short run, that's how it works. But in the long run, raising people into greater leadership pays off a hundredfold. It's worth it. Now, I wanna throw another reason why we need apprentices in here that is not found in this passage, but it is found in other places in scripture. We need to raise up new leaders because you won't be around forever. None of us will, we won't be around forever. And I'm not just talking about people who are at the end of their career or the end of their life. Any of us, we, we might get a new job, we might get transferred, you might get promoted, you might just go on vacation or be sick for a while and not be around to do the thing you're doing. That you might, at some point, have your children move out of your home and they won't have you around. That you might be called into a new serving role at church and so someone else is gonna take that place. If you are not raising up others to do what you can do, your leadership might actually be detrimental in the long run. It might be a time bomb set to go off for your family or organization or church so that there'll be a setback in the future when you are no longer available to fill that role. Every leadership assignment is temporary. You may not feel like you are replaceable, but one day you will be replaced. The question is whether or not you wanna help replace yourself or if you wanna burden other people with that problem. If we want our leadership to be sustainable, to be effective, and a blessing long after we are gone, we need apprentices. Let's go to the third point. Jethro continues his advice and he explains how you develop apprentices how you develop apprentices. There's kind of four steps he lays out here. Let's read the first one in verse 19. He says, listen to me now, and I will give you some advice, and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. Now here's how I would summarize the first thing that Jethro tells Moses. He's saying this, do what only you can do. Do what only you can do. I said it before, at this point in history, Moses is the only person who can walk into the presence of God and talk to him. Now, any Israelite, they could pray, they can you know, lift up their needs to God in prayer, just like you and I do, but Moses had this unique relationship. Exodus 33 says that he spoke to God face to face as a person talks with a friend. So that's unique. That means that when there is a big problem in Israel, when they have sinned or they have a need that's extreme, the only person who can go and plead for God's mercy, plead for God's help is Moses. And so Jethro says, you gotta keep doing that because you're the only one who's allowed to do that right now. The other thing that only Moses could do is what it says in verse 20. It says Moses gives God's instructions and decrees. So today, how do we learn how God wants us to live, what his instructions are? You can open up the Bible, right? It's right here. We, we have God's revelation in front of us. And that means anybody can study God's word. And it means that there can be lots of people who can teach God's word. But remember, at this point in the story, 
The Bible has not yet been written. Moses is the first person to write anything in the Bible and he hasn't done it yet. And so that means if someone wants revelation from God, instruction from God, Moses is the only person who can go up on the mountain and hear what that is and bring that to the people. So what Jethro is saying is, Moses, be clear on the things only you can do. The things that you cannot delegate to somebody else because they're uniquely your responsibility. What for you is that? And whatever your role of leadership is, the things you cannot hand off to another person. If you are starting a business, you, you are responsible for cultivating relationships with investors. If you are a manager, you cannot hand off performance reviews to some other person on your team. If you are a parent, you are responsible to pray for your children, to discipline them, to affirm them. That's something only you can do. Now, even if you get support from other people to do these things, they're responsibilities that you cannot relinquish. So how is knowing these non-delegatable things helpful in raising up apprentices? Because once you know what you have to keep, you also realize all the things that can be given away. Here's what you'll discover. You will find out that the things that you must do is a lot smaller than the things that you could hand off to someone else or train up someone else to do. You might actually be surprised at some of the things that can be delegated in the family. Okay, another example. Whose job is it to make the family rules, the household rules? Parents, right? But what if you involved your children in the process of doing this? This usually works best in a family with older kids, but we did it with our five-year-old and our eight-year-old. We have this kind of point system for them where they get rewarded for some things and they lose points for other things. And we said, okay, let's make the rules. What should get you to gain points and what should have you lose points? And we were amazed that when they started listing off the things that they should and shouldn't do, that they basically came up with the list that Michelle and I would have, but they did it on their own. Now, why would we do it this way? We did it this way for one reason, because it gets buy-in. They, they know why and how we did it. But more than that, it's a form of apprenticeship. Our children one day are gonna have homes of their own and they're gonna have to decide, okay, what's the culture of our home? What should it feel like? What behavior should be acceptable here? They're gonna have to make those sorts of calls. And so we are training them to do the things that we do now by involving them in the process as apprentices. Are there things in whatever area of leadership you have that you could delegate or you could raise up other people to do. And even the things you must do right now, are there ways that you could bring people in so that they could learn to do them in the future for when you aren't there? Interestingly, Moses had an apprentice, a guy named Joshua, that joined him. I, you know, I said that Moses was the only one who went on the mountain. That's strictly speaking not true. Joshua joined him going up on the mountain. He didn't say anything, do anything. He simply observed Moses interacting with God. That, that's one of the ways that Joshua was prepared for the time when Moses died because Joshua took over for Moses in that key role. Let's look at the next step in developing apprentices. Verse 21, Jethro says this, select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain. So after you know what only you can do, you need to look at the people around you and you need to call out potential. You need to call out potential. Jethro says, you need to find capable men to be judges. Now, I want to take an aside here, because some of you hear that and you say, wait a minute, men? Capable men? Like, didn't they have women who are in some leadership? Like, what's with the chauvinism in the Bible? Now, that is a really, really good question for another sermon, okay? <laughs> but let me give you a short answer, because this is important. I don't want you to be distracted by it. You have to remember that the law that God gave Israel 
was contextualized to that time and place, to an ancient Near Eastern culture. And in those societies, there were not women who, were, who held public office. And so in some ways, they're just in line with their society. Uh, and just because that's how they did it does not mean that the Bible forbids women today from holding public office. So that is not one of the things that the Bible commands. Uh, another thing to keep in mind here is that even though the, the Bible exists within a certain culture, there are actually ways that it pushes against the culture. Places where there were le- women in leadership that pushed the envelope for those societies. So if you move forward a few books in the Bible, you will find a woman named Deborah. She was a prophet and she was a judge in Israel. And we actually have a scene of her sitting and having people come and bringing their cases to her where she decides the case, just like Moses was doing here. And that would have been something that would have stretched people in that time and place. So the Bible is a complex thing when it comes to this. It's in its own culture, but it also has countercultural examples scattered throughout it. So uh, again, I wish I could develop that more, but that's a, a subject for another time and place. Back to Jethro's instructions. He says, look for the people who have leadership potential. And he holds two qualities in tension here. He, first, he says, find capable people. And, and this is key. When you are looking for apprentices, what you should be looking for is not just your need, but their gifts and abilities. Look, look at their skills. Where do they shine? Where do they get excited? Where are they effective? Where do people defer to them? And in those areas, those are the places to call them into greater leadership. So what God's made them to do. Now, this doesn't mean that they've got to have expert level skill before you invite them into greater leadership. You you got to remember the the people that were becoming judges here, they had been slaves in Egypt. None of them were government officials before this time. But you do need to have people who can learn the basics and grow into the role. They need to be capable people. Jethro goes on though, he emphasizes this. He says, pay attention to their character, to their character. For this role, they needed to have a healthy fear of God integrity, a strong sense of justice, they had to have that certain character. Now, here's the thing. Good character is not enough to qualify you for leadership. You actually have to be capable. But bad character, no matter how capable you are, is enough to disqualify you from leadership. And I'm not just talking about church or spiritual leadership. How many organizations have been undermined from the inside? Because the only question people were asking was, can this person get the job done rather than considering whether or not that person had the character to handle the increased responsibility and leadership and authority. When you are looking for an apprentice, look for potential in both capability and in character. Once you find that person though, you need to call them to do something more. Uh, I heard another guy, a pastor named uh, Dave Ferguson, talk about the kinds of conversations you have with uh, people when you call out their potential. And he called them this, he called them I-C-N-U conversations. It's because in those conversations, you say to someone, here's what I see in you. Now, I know that's cheesy, but you're gonna remember it. That's why I'm passing it on, okay? I see in you conversations. You say to someone, I see this ability in you. I see this gift in you. This is where I see God at work in you. I see this possible future for you. I see this calling in you. And this is actually one of the coolest things you can do for another person. For a lot of us, if we think about it, our life story has these moments where someone recognized something in us and called it out and it changed the trajectory of our lives. I would not be standing here today if someone didn't say, Clayton, I see a preacher in you. Think about the people in your life that you could do this for. An employee, a student, a friend of yours, someone in your community group, your spouse. 
Parents, think about your children. How would it change the course of your kid's life to have you look them in the eye and say, I see courage in you. I see compassion in you. I see creativity in you. I see leadership qualities in you, and I want to see you use them. It's powerful stuff. If you are a volunteer here at the church, there's actually something you should be thinking about no matter what your role is. So think about what you do here. Are you a Kids World volunteer? You let a go team, you're an usher, you're, you're on the worship team, an elder, a community group leader, you, you pray in the zones. Think about what you do and look around and ask, are there other people who could do this, who have the potential to do this? And then think about how am I gonna call them into that? How am I gonna invite them to do this with me? We have actually found that over the years, the, the people who are best at recruiting volunteers are other volunteers, people who are already serving in that area. And, and really, if you're, and whatever you're doing, you should be thinking, how can I replicate myself? How can I replace myself? And you might actually have someone already come into mind. And I'd encourage you, have that I see in you conversation with someone and invite them to serve with you. Jethro keeps going. Uh, verse 21, he says this, after you find someone with potential, Appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Now, that is simply the way their government structure was broken down. The, it's sort of like city, county, state, and federal levels of government. They had you know, tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. And so this is the next thing Moses needs to do. He needs to put his apprentices, deploy them at their highest level, at the highest level they can handle. So when you are raising up new leaders, this is key. You wanna put people in a place that is both not too hard or too easy for them. You want it to be a place where they are stretched just enough. Think about it like a video game, okay? If you think about a video game that you played that was so easy. Like imagine Super Mario Brothers, but if it was just like a flat level and sometimes you jumped over a pipe, like how long would you play that game? Probably longer than you should, but you'd give up after just a few minutes. You'd be like, you know, this is pretty dumb. I'm gonna find something else. But imagine a, another game that is so hard that you keep playing and playing five seconds in every time you die again and again and again. It'd be so frustrating, you'd give that up really quickly too. The very best video games are the ones that actually adjust to your level of skill. I actually learned this the other day. I thought I was so good at Mario Kart, but it turns out that if you're slowing down, the top guy actually slows down. The computer adjusts for you, so you feel like you're, you're just competitive enough that you keep playing. That's how it works, okay? This is actually key for learning experiences, that we feel like we're being challenged, but we're not so overwhelmed that we give up. When I was a kid, my dad worked at a company that provided facilities management for different schools and banks and organizations. And so the company would assign him to a place for uh, several years at a time. And he would manage the, the facilities there. And then after he got his feet under him, he uh, really had mastered the job there and things were, were running really smoothly, they would transfer him and he'd be at some other place for three, four, five years. And the reason they did this was because within that organization, they always wanted their employees in a place where they were just at the edge of their capacity. They weren't, they weren't on autopilot. They were always having to figure things out to learn and grow and get better because they found over time that improved the quality of all of their employees. This is the ideal situation if you are raising up an apprentice. Deploy them at the highest level that they can handle that stretches them just a little bit. Let's look at Jethro's final piece of advice here in verse 22. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases, they can decide themselves. So Moses is supposed to send these guys out into these new roles, but he's gotta remain available for them when they run into the things that are hard for them to handle. 
So when developing apprentices, the key is to give real responsibility, but also coaching. Real responsibility along with coaching. This is one of the things that makes uh, uh, apprenticeship different from classroom learning. Like think about a classroom. Really, what is at stake if you do poorly in a classroom? Most of the time, it's a poor grade, uh, it, it might be a little bit of tuition, and some embarrassment in front of the class. But in terms of real-world consequences, the effects of your work, it's not very high. But in apprenticeship, you have to entrust the apprentice with the real possibility of messing something up that affects other people and your bottom line. An apprentice plumber or electrician can do damage to a home. A medical student, a resident, can affect a patient's health while they are still learning. But that is part of how the learning process works. In apprenticeship, you need to know the real weight of consequences. But here's the thing, you don't just leave people out there to figure it out on their own. You walk alongside them and coach them as they do that. Think about how it would have been with these judges and Moses. I'm pretty sure that when they hit a hard case, they didn't just say, okay, hey Moses, you handle it, and they never thought about it again. They probably brought those people to Moses and they stood there while Moses made the judgment. They heard what he said and how he thought through it. And I bet you that afterwards they talked it through, that Moses said, here's what I was thinking about. Here's why I made the decision I did. And they learned and grew. The, the fact that they would bring those hard cases to Moses actually probably made them better at having less hard cases that they couldn't handle because they learned and they grew through that coaching and the feedback that they got from Moses. Uh, Moses actually had uh, Joshua, his apprentice, who was around him even more for even more in-depth coaching. Uh, Moses spent a ton of time with him I wish I could tell you the whole story of their, their relationship together, but it's actually pretty simple to find it. If you just search online and you search the name Joshua in the book of Exodus and Numbers, you'll get this entire story of their apprenticeship. And Joshua was with Moses all the time. He observed him. He helped him with different projects. Moses would give him tough assignments and, and, and give feedback to him after that. They had lots of conversations about what Moses was doing and why. And that was how Joshua was prepared to take Moses' place. So here's the question for you. Are there some up-and-coming people in your life that you need to spend more time coaching? And I don't care what level of leadership you're in. That, you might be a big sibling to a younger sibling, and this applies. Are there people in your life that you need to spend more time developing, having those conversations, talking about why you do the way, things the way you do? Spend time with them. Here's what developing new leaders is like. It's like teaching driver's ed, okay? In driver's ed, we don't just say, okay, read these books, watch this video, and you know, pretty much when you're done, you're ready to drive a car. You'd never be able to learn how to drive that way. We also don't say, well, here's the keys, there's the highway, good luck, go figure it out. Like that would, that would be disastrous. What we do is we give real responsibility and we coach them. We say, here, get behind the wheel, but then I'm gonna get in on the other side of the car and I'm gonna be there with you. I'm gonna give you feedback as you learn how to drive. Now, is there the possibility that this could go poorly? I don't know. You put a 16-year-old whose frontal lobe is still developing in control of a two-ton hunk of metal going 50 miles an hour down the highway. It can be risky, okay? But what's the alternative? At some point, you either become their chauffeur or you let them learn how to drive. Raising up apprentices does require courage. It requires humility. You have to relinquish control. You have to take risks. But the payoff is incredible. People end up going places you never dreamed they would go because of it. Before we conclude, I wanna step back on this series and just take a, a big picture look at, at why all this stuff matters. 
Like, why do we talk about leadership? Is it just because it's pragmatic, useful stuff, helpful in work and home life and so on? Or does it have a part in God's bigger story? Here's why leadership matters. Because leadership development was God's project for humanity from the very beginning. When God first made man and woman, this is what he said to them. Rule over the world. Rule over the world. Be leaders in my creation. Now, sin messed that up, but God has not given up on that project. He is still developing us to be leaders in whatever whatever area he's assigned us to. We're about to celebrate communion. And when Jesus first gave this symbol to his followers, do you know who he was with? He was with his disciples. You know a better way to translate the word disciple? Apprentice. He was teaching them to do what he did by having them do it with him. And the symbol that he gave, that symbolized his broken body and his shed blood poured out on the cross. You know what, why he did that? But why he went to the cross and broke his body and shed his blood? It was to pay for our sin, to, to forgive us and set us free. But why did he free us? Here's what it says in Revelation chapter five. There's a, a praise song to Jesus. It says, you were slain and with your blood from the cross, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language, people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God. And here's the key phrase. And they will reign on the earth. This is why Jesus paid for our sins with his body and his blood. So that we would reign. So that we would rule in his new heavens and new earth. So that we would be the leaders he made us to be. Leadership development is God's project for humanity from the very beginning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have made us to exercise responsibility and leadership in big and small ways, in different areas in our life. And you have made the people around us to do that as well. So God, we pray that you would give us eyes to see people around us, the potential that you have put in people, their gifts and their abilities, the things you've called them to do. Give us your eyes to see them the way you have made them. Give us courage to call people out into new forms of leadership and to take those risks of letting them have responsibility. God, give us that faith to call other people out. And give us joy in doing it as we see people thrive. Make us the sort of life-giving leaders that you are for us. And let us see the effectiveness of your kingdom be multiplied a hundred, a thousand times. Because we have seen more people step into their calling. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.